I don't need to tell anybody here that uh, the internet has changed our world. Um, and the access to it on every smart device we have, uh, anywhere you are, has changed it even more. Um, now, you don't have to raise your hand, but just think about this. Some of you who maybe get online and check things out, how many of you have gotten to the point now where somebody says something to you and you're not sure if you believe it or not, and you go home and you ask what my kids call Dr. Google? Anybody? Like, like you don't admit to them that you're questioning what they're telling you. You just go home and check the internet because, of course, everything on the internet's true, right? So it, it's really changed the way we process information. I, I remember, and it's not, my kids will say this was back in the dark ages, but I'm not that old. I remember um, having to get out some of these things called encyclopedias. Anybody remember encyclopedias? Like they were people who came door to door selling them because this is how you got information. And they only updated it like every, what, five or ten years or something, Encyclopedia Britannica. Now information is being produced on a minute by minute basis that, that rivals the entire Encyclopedia Britannica every minute. That's how much information is, is coming out. Um, when I was in college, I remember my great-grandfather was still living at the time, and he had a milestone birthday. And so I went to the library. Remember those things called libraries where you used to go? And if you wanted to find something out, you'd go look it up in a card catalog. And, and so I went to the library, and I decided I would take the front page of the New York Times from his birthday, from every year that he'd been alive, and I'd make a, a notebook for him of those. And there was the microfish, and you had to put the little film strip in. I mean, anybody who's, you know, under 25 is looking at glazed look. You should have heard how this went over at 9.30, glazed look. You know, you put the microfish in the thing, and you'd, like, put it in the machine, this big old machine, and then you had to pay, like, 25 cents for every page you copied or something like that. I, the way we get information is so different. But, but Google and YouTube have really changed the way that we view the world. But it wasn't Google and YouTube that created the human need to see Actually, it was the human need to see, the human need to know that led to the development of that technology. Because the need to see in order to believe has always been part of the human experience. It's just, it's normal for us that we, we want to see things, we want to know things, we want to, to touch things. The best teachers that we had growing up, that I had growing up, were always those who understood that the students needed something more than information. That they needed an experience. And so they would incorporate all kinds of things where you touched and you tasted and you heard and you watched and all kinds of ways that, that we learn. And, and some of those teachers had the ability, you might remember some, they might stand out in your mind, they had the ability to take a subject that you didn't even care about, you didn't even like, and then you met this teacher and that teacher gave you an experience that you'd never had before and that experience gave you a whole new appreciation for something we sometimes forget this when we begin to talk about God. We, we don't think about these things. We know about it. We, we ourselves want an experience. We ourselves sort of resist just information by itself for its own sake. But when we start talking about God, we sort of revert back to something. And we think, well, if we could just give people enough information about God, then somehow they'll come to know him. It would be enough to convince them uh, of his love for them. As if a lecture can convince somebody of love. And so we try to talk to people about grace and we'll put a graph on the chart, on the wall, or hand them a graph, as if a graph can tell people about grace. 
Because we want people to have the information, but it's not what we want. It's not what we're looking for. Because knowing God does not come through the information that we gather about him. I I could read a book, if one were written, I could read a book about my wife, a biography or an autobiography, and I could read all about her history, where she was born, how she grew up, where she went to school. I, I could even, if I could get access to medical records, I could read all about her medical history and look at x-rays and MRIs. I could read a psychological profile. I could read a personality inventory. I could interview her friends and her family. I could interview the people that she works with. I could observe her from a distance and watch, but that doesn't mean that I know her. I come to know her by experience with her. I come to love her as I experience her. And sometimes, sometimes we forget about that when it comes to people's relationship with God. And we think the information is enough. And maybe you today are here and you've lived your life thinking that enough information about God, if I just accumulate enough information about God, then I'll know him. And you wonder why you continually get frustrated. You, you get frustrated and you think, well, maybe something's wrong with me. But if information is not enough, then what is it that we miss? And how do you have an experience with a God that you can't see? With a God that you can't touch? With a God that maybe you can't hear? How do you have an experience with that kind of God? How, how does that experience, what does that experience look like? And here's maybe an even harder question. What if the experience that you associate with God is a bad one? What if you've had an experience in your life that you've associated with God and it has taught you something about God and you're like, I'm not so sure God is loving. Because if he were loving, why, why did my parents treat me that way? Or why did my dad leave? Or why did my younger brother die? If God is that loving. That's the experience I've had. And so I don't know if that experience really is drawing me to get to know this God more. Or maybe you've had a bad experience with people who claim themselves to know God. And so you've had these encounters with people and you're like, if that person follows God, then I don't want anything to do with their God. Because I don't want to turn out like them. Maybe it's a bad church experience. Maybe you were involved in a church and you felt like the person who does what I do, a priest, a pastor, whatever you called them, was somebody who was trying to take the Bible and manipulate it to control you. And so you've had a bad church experience and you've, you've, somehow, you've somehow taken that experience and you've, you've looked at God through the lens of that experience. So what do you do? What do you do with those kind of experiences? Because let's face it. People who do what I do, people who sit where you sit, sometimes they're just jerks, right? I mean, come on, they are. I mean, you don't have to look around or point, but some of you, you might even know some. It doesn't necessarily mean that your encounter with them is reflective of the God they claim that they worship. And, and come on, every church has got problems. So every time you go to a church, you, you go to a church and you have this experience at church, and sometimes you associate that with God, but sometimes they're just bad churches, They're just not very good churches, and they don't do a very good job. So what do you do? The interesting thing for me is that throughout the testimony of the Scripture, we encounter God constantly seeking to have 
intimate connection with people. That the people whom he created in his image, he has this desire, not just for them to know about him, but to know him personally, to know him intimately, to have a relationship with them. And we see it from the very beginning. In a story where it's not very likely, often, because we think about sin separating us from God. And that is what sin does. But the very first encounter with sin in the Bible is the story of Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve go and, you know the story, they eat the fruit, and then they do what? They hide from God. And it's God who steps into the story looking for Adam and Eve. But somehow in our mind, we've turned that around and we think to ourselves, okay, I've done some bad things. I'm not a good person. I've made mistakes. I stayed when I should have left. I left when I should have stayed. Um, I drink more than I should. I'm not as honest as I need to be. And God doesn't want anything to do with me. But throughout the scripture, it's just the opposite. It's that our brokenness, our brokenness somehow moves us away from God, but God is constantly pursuing an experience with us, not just the information. There was an Old Testament prophet by the name of Jeremiah who said this, and it's, a, it's an amazing thought. He said, if you seek me, you will find me if you seek me with all your heart. That he's a God who can be found. And that he continually draws closer to us for this desire, for this desire for intimacy, this desire for us to know and be known by him. To the point that at one time in history, he steps out of time and he steps into time and space out of heaven and he takes on flesh and he comes and John says, he dwells among us. And John says this, he says, and we, I, have seen his glory with my own eyes. I've seen him. We, we touched him. God draws near. God comes to have an experience. Early in the Gospel of John, we're introduced to a man that we often call John the Baptist, and as Baptists, we especially like that title. But John actually never calls him that. John calls him John the Witness. He uses the word witness 14 times. John had had an experience with Jesus, and so John begins to tell his disciples. Now, in this day and age, anytime there was a mentor or a master teacher, anybody that followed that teacher were called their disciples. And so John, is, John has got a group of disciples who are following him around. One of the disciples' name was also John, so it can be a little confusing. He is the one who is writing the Gospel of John. It's sort of his journal of the events. And so, so John the baptizer was telling people all the time, he was saying, listen, you should get ready because God's going to show up and he wants to have a relationship with you. You're going to come to know him. So he did this ritual where he baptized them and he said, we're going to baptize you for the cleansing of your sins. And it was a symbolic act. And he would baptize these people to say, because you're getting ready to meet God. How many of you can remember growing up, your mama said, she said the same thing. Every mama across the world says the same thing. When it's time for dinner, she says what? Go and wash your hands. Go wash your hands because you're getting ready to eat. John the Baptist was basically saying the same thing. Get ready. Something's getting ready to happen. I want to come and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. Well, he was preaching this. The message was getting pretty well known. His disciples had heard him talk about the coming of the Messiah many times. He had said three specific things about this Messiah who was to come. He said, he is the Lord. 
In other words, he's God, he's the boss, he's the main guy, he is the son of God, and he's the lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. And he kept talking to his followers, telling them about this, and then we see this happen in John chapter 1, if you have a Bible, John chapter 1, verse 35. The next day, John, the baptizer, not the writer, there's a John writing this and a John he's talking about. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. Now, we know the two disciples were John, the one who's writing, and Andrew. These were the two guys who were following John the baptizer. These guys were friends. They probably grew up together. Both of their dads um, ran a fishing business on the Sea of Galilee. They worked together. They both had older brothers. Uh, Andrew's older brother's name was Peter. And John's older brother's name was James. And uh, they, these two young fellows had started following this preacher out in the desert named John the Baptizer. And so they're the two that are with John on this occasion. And when he saw Jesus pass by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. Let me translate that for you. This is the fellow I've been talking about. This is the guy right here. I've been telling you guys all about him. Now, this tells me something about Jesus. I don't know in your mind when you picture Jesus or if you even think about him or picture him at all. But, uh, but in my mind, I've sort of got this idea that if Jesus walked by me, I'd know it was him. I mean, there'd be, you know, glowing. There'd be like the angels, oh, somewhere in the background. There'd be something. I mean, you know, I'd be like, yeah, that's Jesus. I recognize him. Oh, apparently that's not the case, that Jesus walked by and he looked very much like everybody else. And so John pointed him out. He said, this is the guy I've been talking about. Verse 37, when the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. When they heard John, they heard the testimony of somebody else who'd had an encounter with Jesus And he'd been talking about it and talking about it. And when they heard that he was the Lamb of God, they heard this, they followed them. You know, everybody is looking for something. And John had prepared his disciples to be on the lookout. He'd been having these conversations all along. And sometimes our God conversations with people are simply to prepare them for the moment when God shows up in their life. Some of you know what I'm talking about from personal experience. Because there was a time in your life when maybe you were far away from God or maybe you, you weren't going to church, maybe you didn't know anything about Jesus, didn't care anything about Jesus. And there was somebody that you knew who started talking to you about Jesus and faith and maybe the Bible. And something inside of you kind of went, I mean, just like, ooh, I don't want to have that conversation with you. And so maybe you even avoided them. Because you didn't want to talk about that. But at the same time, while they're having this conversation with you that you don't want to be engaged in, there's something inside of you, deep down inside of you, that's like, what is it about this conversation that makes me so uncomfortable? There's something inside of me that, that I know I probably should, should engage in the conversation, but I'm not going to. I'm not ready. And then something happened. You had an experience in your life. There was something that happened, a circumstance that was beyond your control. And suddenly, that conversation that you didn't want to have with that person comes back to mind. You're like, wait, what did she say? What did he say? Is it possible that this says something about what I'm going through? See, conversations about God prepare us to have experiences with God. 
And that's what John the Baptist had done to his followers. He had prepared people. Verse 38, turning around, Jesus saw them following him. Now, I love this. I love this. It's almost as if John and Andrew were just kind of slip in the back of the crowd, pay no attention to the men in the back. You know, they didn't really want to be noticed. They didn't want to necessarily be recognized. They just kind of slipped in and slipped out like some of y'all do. You know, come on, come on. You know I'm right. The, you hate hug time at church. You hate it. Because you just want to slip in, go unnoticed, check it out, listen a little bit, and go about your business. And that's fine. That's fine. But that's exactly what two of Jesus' disciples did. That's exactly how these two disciples began their relationship with Jesus the same way. So you're in good company if that's you. So they slipped in and they, they were kind of there. Jesus looked around and saw, the, saw them following and asked, What do you want? What do you want? I find the questions of Jesus fascinating. I've actually been toying with the idea of doing an entire series on just all the questions Jesus asks. Because here's what I know about Jesus. When Jesus asks a question, it's not because he doesn't know the answer. There's another reason Jesus asks the question. And he asks a lot of them. And in this case, you think the question is very simple. What do you want? What do you want? So many times in our lives, that's the question we need to answer. That's the question we need to think about when we're having a fight with our spouse, a fight with our kids, when things are tense at work with coworkers or neighbors. Really, maybe the question we need to ask is what do I really want? What do I want? Because there's something going on here that's underneath the surface of what's taking place in this conversation. You know what I'm talking about? I, any elephants in the room? And you, you, you talk all around it, but the whole conversation is kind of pointing to something bigger that nobody's really saying. That nobody's, and Jesus cuts right to the heart and says, what do you want? It's an important question. It's an important question. And I'm not sure that John and Andrew were ready for the question. Because look at their answer in verse 38. And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher. Now, interestingly enough, these two fellows' introduction to Jesus uh, by John never included the title Rabbi. John did not call him that. G John called him the Lamb of God. John called him Lord. John called him the, the, the Son of God. But John never called him Rabbi. He called him, he called him these other titles, loftier titles, bigger titles. So when John and Andrew speak to Jesus, they say they're caught off guard. And it's almost like when Jesus turns around and says, what do you want? They're looking around, are you talking to me? And so they say the first thing that comes to their mind, Rabbi. And I love this. Jesus doesn't correct them. Jesus doesn't try to say, wait, wait, <laughs> I'm not just a rabbi. I, let me just show you who I really am here. Let me just, I'm, I'm the son of God. I'm the savior of the world. I'm God made flesh. Before Abraham was, I am. I mean, he doesn't stop them and try to correct them. He meets them exactly where they are. 
And for some reason, you're being here today, you have some information that you've gathered about Jesus. And maybe you're here today and you think, well, Jesus is a really great teacher and you put him on the line with the other great teachers that the world has known. Okay. Okay. Jesus seems to be like, I'll meet you there. I'm much more than that, but I'll meet you in that place. And that's a good place to start. So they say rabbi, which means teacher. And then they ask a question. Now this, have you ever just asked a dumb question? I mean, and then you think about it later and you're like, why did I say that? What, 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 what was I? I mean, if you talk a lot like I do, it's a real problem. You know, the more you talk, the more likely you are to say dumb things. And so they're caught short and they say something. They say, what, where are you staying? Because they didn't know what else to say. Where are you staying? See, they're, these two fellows, they've not experienced Jesus yet. They had all the information that John could download to them. They knew all the facts about him. But they had not experienced him. And Jesus said, okay, I'll meet you with the information you already have. Where are you staying Verse 39, Jesus says, come, he replied, and you will see. Come and see. Jesus could have told them. He could have explained who he was and what he had come to do. He could have filled their heads with more information than they could have ever comprehended or understood. And instead, he says, come and see. And look what they did. Verse 39, simple. So they went and saw. They saw where he was staying, and they spent the day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. This is one of the reasons I love the Bible, and one of the reasons why I'm so sure it's true. Look what John does here. It's it's simple, and we, we rush past it so often. He puts a time stamp in his journal. Because this was, an, this was an important encounter. This was his first encounter with Jesus. So you better believe he remembered exactly when it was. That's why he wrote it down. I mean, you read Homer's Iliad and Odyssey. There aren't time stamps in those. I mean, they're works of fiction. The Bible's not a work of fiction. The Bible's giving us an account of historic facts. And here's one of the small examples. It was about 4 o'clock in the afternoon when this happened. Because it was an encounter that changed my life. It doesn't seem like much of an encounter. Where are you staying? But it was a transformative encounter. Now, they saw where he was staying. They spent the afternoon with him. And then they packed up their stuff and they went back to the Sea of Galilee. And they went back to work for their father's fishing business. But something was different. Something was different. Not because they had more information about Jesus, but because they had had an encounter with him. They would had an experience with him. And so I can imagine that Andrew, as he's mending the nets, he just can't get Jesus out of his mind. He's just thinking about the things that he said in that encounter, the things that he did. I can imagine that John is working with his dad and he's, you know, cleaning the fish and preparing to sell it, take them to market to sell them. And he's thinking in his mind about uh, about what Jesus looked like and the way he encountered people and the way he approached people. And the words that he said, and they're ringing in their mind. And so this is going on, we don't know for how long, for how many days, but eventually Jesus shows back up. And he walks by the Sea of Galilee and he calls to them and he says, Hey, you, come, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. And you know what they did? 
they went. They went with Jesus. It's, it's a simple, simple invitation. It's a simple question. I wonder if you think about the question in these terms. Here it is. God's question for you today. For you today, right now. What do you want? What do you want? Because you're looking for something, some of you. And you're looking for it at the bottom of a bottle. You're looking for it in a relationship that you just can't get to work out. You're looking for it when you go shopping at the mall. You're looking for something. And God's question to you is, what do you want? If you strip all of that away, what's underneath it? Because we all know that it's not at the bottom of that bottle. Because you've emptied a lot of them. And we all know that if it were in a retail store, you'd have already bought it. Because you got the credit card bills to prove it. And we all know that if it were in the right relationship, you've had enough of those that you'd have surely found it by now. And if it were on the internet, you'd have clicked the link already. So what do you want really? What do you want? And if you're looking for it and if you're willing to look for it in all those places, is it just possible that the thing you're looking for is in a place you haven't looked yet? In an experience, in an encounter with Jesus Christ? God's question, what do you want? God's invitation for you is just this simple. Come and see. Come and see. This is the way Jesus encountered people throughout the Gospels. This is the way he encountered the disciples. Do you know that the disciples belonged to Jesus' tribe of followers long before they believed who he was? They belonged before they believed. They just kept following Jesus. They just kept showing up and they kept hearing him teach and they kept seeing him perform miracles. And all the way through his life, they still weren't sure of the things that John the Baptist had said at the very beginning of the story. That he's the son of God, the lamb who comes to take away the sins of the world. And after three years of walking with Jesus, they see Jesus crucified on the cross, which is what happened to lambs. Lambs were sacrificed and their blood was poured out for the sins. They saw that and still they said, we thought he was the one. And then, three days later... God raised him from the dead, and a light bulb went off. And then they think, oh, that's what John meant, the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. We believe now. But they had to keep coming. They had to keep showing up. And it was only as they encountered Jesus, as they experienced Jesus, as they experienced the resurrection, that they understood who he was. What if that's the story that God is writing across the pages of your life? What if what you're looking for is found in a relationship with Jesus and all you have to do is respond to the simple invitation to come and see? See, that's what we invite you to here at Southside. We invite you to belong even if you don't believe. You're welcome in this place. Nobody's asking for a membership card. Nobody's asking you to pay anything. If you don't believe, keep coming. Keep coming. And some people who do believe will even move, get out of your way and give you their seat. 
so that you can experience what we've experienced. Keep listening. Keep experiencing. Today may not be your day. This is one of the reasons why we promote this conversation called Starting Point, which we talked about earlier in the service. And the invitation for you to just come. What would it cost you to spend 10 weeks, 10 hours in an open conversation about God to resolve a lifetime worth of searching and promise an eternity worth of promise? If you're going to spend your life searching for it in all these other places that have terrible consequences on you and your family and your budget, why not try the very thing that God is making available to you. Come and see. You can sign up in two weeks. You can come next week and stay right after church and join us for an orientation for discovering my church and be a part of it. We'd love for you to do that, just to come and see. You know, the, um, I did some search, uh, searching on the internet this week about jelly beans. Got these? Now, I'm not going to ask how many of you ate them. You were told not to, and you're in church, so I know you wouldn't lie. So let me me tell you what I found out about jelly beans. And I know it's true because it's all on the internet. Do you know that it takes 7 to 21 days to make one jelly bean? 7 to 21 days to make a jelly bean. Do you know that jelly beans, nobody knows who really invented jelly beans, but the first time that jelly beans were advertised was in the year 1861, and citizens of the United States were encouraged to buy them and send them to soldiers in the Civil War. Now, some of you probably, uh, some of you w- probably know this. Who was the president who loved jelly beans? Ronald Reagan, right. Do you know that Ronald Reagan first started eating jelly beans when he was governor of California and quit smoking? It's called substitution. He just substituted one addiction for another. Some of you are doing that. (laughs) So jelly beans. And in the Ronald Reagan Library in California, there's a life-size portrait of Ronald Reagan made all in, you guessed it, jelly beans. That Ronald um, Ronald Reagan had jelly beans with him everywhere. On Air Force One, in his office, everywhere he went, he had jelly beans. Do you know that Easter time... Is the, is the season where the most jelly beans are sold. And to prepare for Easter, are you ready for this? They make 16 billion, with a B, jelly beans to sell for Easter. Now, I can know all of that. And I can find it on the internet. And I can turn this package over, and if my eyes were good enough, which they're not, I could read all the ingredients that are in a jelly bean. I could go to a factory and I could see how they're made, a seven to 21 day process. I could do all of that. But there's only one way, only one thing I can do, right? You ready? Lemon. It's a lemon jelly bean. Now, come on, come on, come on. That's silly, silly illustration, but listen, listen, listen. Here's what God's word says in, in the book of Psalms. He, he says this, simplest invitation ever. He says, taste and see that the Lord is good. 
Isn't that good? Taste and see that the Lord is good. See, some of you are waiting for just the right piece of information. And you'll collect volumes and volumes of information and still not know him. The invitation for Jesus says, come and see. Taste and see that the Lord is good. What do you want? Receive his invitation to come and see. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the simplicity of the gospel message. The simplicity of your invitation to come and see. And Father, I will be the first to confess that we complicate it so many times. We make it so much more complicated than that. And I'm grateful for the record of these stories that remind us that when Jesus encountered people, Father, he, he didn't just try to give them more information. He experienced communion. He experienced intimacy. He experienced relationship. And it was out of that relationship that those followers came to know who he was. And God, you're the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so I have to believe the invitation is still the same to come and see. So I pray right now, Lord, for those who are here, that they, they really didn't want to be here. There were all kinds of reasons why they're here today. And yet, nonetheless, they're here. And I pray, Lord, like Andrew, like John, that they would just come and see. And Father, that you would help us all to differentiate those experiences that we have from who you really are. To know based on your word, the truth of your love and your grace and your mercy in our lives. Father, somebody here today is hungry for that. They're hungry. And you've invited them to taste and see that you are good. Father, as we come to this time of invitation and commitment, Lord, this time is open to anybody. Maybe somebody who's been following for a long time and they just, at the heart of it, they know they've substituted knowledge for experience. Father, may they come today and just recommit their lives to you, to a relationship with you. Father, for those who have yet to taste and see, Father, Maybe they wouldn't walk an aisle today, but maybe sitting right there where they are, they'd say, you know what, here's what I am going to do. I'm going to show up next week, and I'm going to keep showing up, and I'm going to experience something. Father, we just invite your Holy Spirit, move in this time, however you will, to reveal yourself to us. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.